the America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, dedicated to helping you experience all the benefits of time outside and stay more comfortable while you're out there. From soft and breathable activewear designed to do it all, to just right layers, perfect for changing weather, to sun smart clothing that blocks the sun's harmful rays, every L.L. Bean product is made with comfortable time outside in mind. Visit LLBean.com to shop now. L.L. Bean, be an outsider. One of the most significant land conservation measures in our nation's history was an act that protected over 100 million acres of land. It created or expanded nine national parks and preserves, six national monuments, 25 wild and scenic rivers, and two national forests, including our nation's largest, the Tongass in Southeast Alaska. This legislation also created a compromise between the needs of development and conservation and the competing interests that fought for them. While it was not perfect, it has shaped the history of our public lands and the national park system itself. This week on America's National Parks, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA. Yeah, I'm not a fan of acronyms either, but Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act doesn't really roll off the tongue, so here we are. Outside interests have always been engaged in natural resource extraction in Alaska before it even became a state. The southeastern rainforests provide ample opportunity for logging. Oil was discovered in the Bering River area and on the Kenai Peninsula, and fish populations created the perfect opportunity for commercial fishing interests. In the late 1700s, Russians established the first European settlement in Alaska, which was already home to more than 100,000 native people, and a rich fur trading commerce opened up between Europe, Asia, and the western coast of North America. Many of the Alaska natives living in the Aleutian Islands where Russians arrived were killed by the newcomers or died from diseases that they brought with them. The trading Russian-American company moved its headquarters from Kodiak to Sitka. Alexander Baranov was the manager of the operation, and he tried to establish a settlement near Sitka that was soon destroyed by Alaska natives. His second attempt resulted in the only major armed conflict between Europeans and native Alaskans, known as the Battle of Sitka. The native Alaskans' fight for land rights would eventually be acknowledged 175 years later, in an act signed by President Nixon. Eventually, there were explorers in Alaska that wanted to protect areas of the territory from resource extraction and development. Three national parks were created, decades before statehood, to protect scenic beauty and wildlife. Glacier Bay, Katmai, and Denali. With more, here's Abigail Trebu. In 1959, Alaska became the 49th state in America. The United States gave Alaska the right to select 105 million acres of unreserved federal lands, five times more than any state had been awarded before. The state of Alaska chose Prudhoe Bay and the central North Slope, enormous tracts of land north of the Arctic Circle. 
1968, oil was discovered at Prudhoe Bay on state land. But the only way to deliver oil from the North Slope to a market was to transport it to an ice-free tidewater port. How do you transport millions of gallons of oil hundreds of miles away? A pipeline. The pipeline and the North Slope Hall Road would have to cross land that was claimed by Alaska Natives and the federal government. The Trans-Alaska Pipeline System applied for a permit through the Interior Department to construct a pipeline from Prudhoe Bay to the Port of Valdez on ice-free Prince William Sound. Despite the land claim's controversy, the Secretary of the Interior favored the pipeline and nearly issued a permit for construction of the road in March 1970. In response, five native villages sued to prevent the permit, citing right-of-way claims to the pipeline and road. The judge issued a temporary injunction against the project until the land issue could be settled. For the next two years, numerous bills were proposed in Congress but did not pass. In early 1971, President Richard Nixon presented a message to Congress that called for a 40 million acre land entitlement and a $1 billion compensation package. The House passed a land claims bill, and a month later, the Senate passed a bill that was significantly different from that of the House. A compromise was struck and finally passed by the Senate and House and signed by President Nixon on December 18, 1971. It was called the Alaska Claims Settlement Act. The act enabled Congress to provide 44 million acres of land and nearly $1 billion to newly created Alaska Native regional and village corporations. But it did not provide the opportunity or right for rural Alaskans to practice subsistence. Traditional uses by rural Alaska residents of wild, renewable resources for personal or family use, such as for food, shelter, fuel, clothing, tools, or transportation. Though Alaska is the largest state in America, it only has 13 state routes connecting urban centers, leaving thousands of acres of land without any roads. Living off the land through subsistence is essential to survival, and it is also a cultural way of life for many people. While food is an important aspect of subsistence living, there are many other important uses of wild resources. Wild furs and hides are still the best way to create warm clothing. Wood is used to heat rural homes and to smoke and preserve fish and meat. Wild grasses are made into baskets and mats, and ivory, wood, skin, and furs are crafted into art to use and to sell. Alaska Native peoples practice subsistence as part of their identity, culture, customs, traditions, values, and beliefs. These values are passed down through generations and teach descendants how to live off the land. Each culture expresses specific values in unique ways. But there are some values that Alaska Natives and many non-Native people have in common. Self-sufficiency and sustainability are necessary so that future generations will have access to wild foods that allow for self-reliance. All living things are respected and animals are not mistreated or wasted. The entire animal is used for something. Many cultural traditions hold the belief that a disrespectful person will have bad luck as a hunter in the future. The resources that are harvested are not kept within households. They are shared with the elders and households without hunters in the community. 
The cornerstone of subsistence living is the way it strengthens the connection between place and culture. Multiple generations work together to collect, process, share, and store food, and in this way the traditions are kept alive. Alaska is full of rich resources that sustain plant, animal, and human communities. Several herds of caribou migrate between summer ranges and wintering grounds in Alaska, and it is a common belief among Alaska Native people to let the leading caribou pass through unharmed, ensuring that the following caribou will allow hunters to harvest them as they continue to follow the leader. People harvest fish year-round, though the summer season is especially busy with salmon, whitefish, grayling, and pike harvests. Fish are dried, smoked, cured, canned, or frozen to sustain communities year-round. In the fall, hunters harvest moose, whose hide will be made into clothing like jackets, boots, hats, and mittens. And the moose meat and fat are staple foods. Late summer and fall is also a spectacular time for berry harvests. Berries are eaten raw or cooked into baked goods and other foods. While rights to subsistence were left in the air, so too were conservations on some federal lands. Congress authorized the Secretary of the Interior to withdraw up to 80 million acres to study for possible designation as public lands. But these withdrawals were not lasting and would need further action for permanent protection. In the 1960s, Alaska conservationists were concerned when they learned about how much land was being considered as part of the Native Claims Settlement Bills. There was pressure to include a special lands provision on any Native Claims Bill coming from Congress. More legislation was needed to finish the protection process. The first attempt was introduced in 1977 but did not pass. As the Alaska Claims Settlement Act neared expiration, President Jimmy Carter and the Secretary of the Interior used executive authority to withdraw more than 150 million acres as protected land, some in the form of national monuments. These actions pushed Congress to pass the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act on December 2, 1980. When President Jimmy Carter signed ANILCA into law, it provided protection for subsistence rights and also designated millions of acres of land for conservation as national parks, national wildlife refuges, national forests, and wilderness. Though it was viewed as a national conservation accomplishment, few were completely satisfied with the result. Some were frustrated at how much land was conserved and how many resources were locked up in those lands. Others were disappointed at the lack of wilderness areas in southeast Alaska or the removal of thousands of acres of wilderness for mining in Misty Fjords National Monument and guarantees for annual timber harvests in Tongass National Forest. Part of the law also mandated a transportation corridor through gates of the Arctic to reach the Ambler Mining District and the allowed uses of cabins, access, and subsistence worried agency land managers who didn't feel they had enough directions for clear management of the resources. A major focus of ANILCA was to prioritize the right of rural Alaskans to practice subsistence harvests of fish and wildlife on federal public lands. Today, the majority of the National Park Service's 54 million acres in Alaska is open to subsistence hunting by local rural residents. 
This set many of Alaska's public lands apart from national parks in the lower 48. The act allows the use of motorized transportation like snowmobiles, motorboats, and airplanes to access traditional activities like hunting, berry picking, and fishing. And Nilka also acknowledged the invaluable expertise of subsistence harvesters to inform management of wildlife populations in Alaska. By establishing more national parks in Alaska, Inilka has also helped the state further develop its tourism industry to become the second largest private sector employer in Alaska. Denali was tripled in size from 2 million acres to 6, and the original 2 million acres were designated as federal wilderness, the highest designation of land protection. Anilka created Kobuk Valley National Park, located north of the Arctic Circle, and redesignated Lake Clark, Gates of the Arctic, Glacier Bay, Katmai, Kenai Fords, and Wrangell St. Elias from national monuments to national parks and preserves. Visitors travel to the 49th state to see spectacular scenery, glaciers, fjords, and view wildlife in their natural habitats. More than a million out-of-state visitors take the trek to southeast Alaska each year, supporting over 10,000 jobs. Visitors to Denali alone spend over $5 million a year in communities near the park. While it's not perfect, Anilka was a landmark goal for conservation in Alaska. It also helped protect access to subsistence resources for natives through special exceptions that preserve traditional activities and accommodate the need for transportation between remote communities. There is still work to be done to improve this act, but its vision provides hope for the future of people and wildlife in Alaska. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abigail Trebu, and written by Lindsay Taylor, whose blog, The Curiosity Chronicles, can be found on the webpage for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, we love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group, and for more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America podcast. Or if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag Be an Outsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.